With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Muchas gracias. Thank you. That's 89-year-old civil rights activist Dolores Huerta leading a crowd in a cheer of Si Se Puede. Together with Cesar Chavez, Dolores co-founded the organization that would go on to become the United Farm Workers. In 1965, she helped organize the successful Delano Grape Strike, and she was the lead negotiator in the workers' contract. We recorded this conversation with Dolores in front of a live audience at Seton Hall University and talked about everything from workers' rights and racism to the importance of taking credit and what it means to dedicate your life to a cause aimed beyond yourself. Dolores, what an honor. Thank you so much. I want to go way back, start at the beginning. You've said that your mother was the most dominant person in your life. What is your most vivid memory of your mother? Oh, my God. Well, my mother was, um, she was not flamboyant, uh, had a very gentle demeanor, uh, spoke in a very soft voice, but very, very powerful and very strong. Uh, always working, I think. When we were kids, she divorced my father because he was abusive. She worked two jobs as a waitress during the daytime in the cannery at night. But then on Saturdays and Sundays, she would be at home. And I remember while she was ironing clothes, uh, she would be reading us uh, Bible stories, making sure that we went to Mass on Sundays. And then she finally got enough money to start her own business. And then she uh, made sure that uh, we had violin lessons and piano lessons, uh, bought us tickets to the symphony, even though she couldn't go herself. So I guess when I talk about remembering my mother, I remember all the things that she did for us, I think. In terms of her own persona, like I said, she was just 
a doer. She she was a doer. She's also though the one who instilled in you this sense that social justice. Oh right, because she always she was very charitable. Because she was a very great admirer of Saint Francis of Xavier. Saint Francis of Xavier, of course, copied Saint Francis of Assisi, and the whole thing about always helping people. You had to help people even if they didn't ask you to help them. If you saw that somebody had a need, it was your responsibility to help that individual and and never expected a, a gratitude from them because she would say, if you want to be rewarded for something that you do, you take away the grace of God for the act that you did. So our obligation as human beings is just to be of service to others. In her business, she finally had a hotel, a 70-room hotel, and uh, we always had people that lived there there were people in need. Uh, I remember a young man coming to our hotel. And we were in California. He was from Kansas. I happened to be there when he got there. And he said to my mother, you know, I'm new here. I don't know anybody. I don't have a job and I don't have a place to stay. And my mother said, don't worry. You know, you can stay with us until you find a job. In fact, when my mother passed away, we found out that we had so many people in my mother's hotel that have lived there for years without paying any rent. <laughs> but that's who she was. You know, she just, whatever she could do in the community, she did. I was struck by something that someone said in the documentary, Dolores. They said, you were living this comfortable middle-class life and you left it to advocate on behalf of those who have so much less. And that isn't an easy choice to make. Take us back to the moment where you said, what I'm seeing is not right, and I'm going to dedicate myself to fixing it. Well, again, when you see injustices, you want to feel, what can I do? And uh, growing up again as a person of color, get all of these uh, discriminations throughout your life and school and wherever you are at work, etc. At that point in time, you felt you couldn't do anything about it. But when I learned how to organize people, how to bring people together, and how to direct nonviolent action to change things, that's what changed my life. Because then when I saw the injustice of the farm workers, the fact that they weren't getting paid, that they were so poor, uh, that the children were so poverty-stricken, and I just said, this, this is wrong. Take me back to the early days of UFW. What did you get right, and what did you get wrong? That's not an easy question to answer because uh, when you're doing that work, organizing people, getting them to have faith in themselves and uh, knowing how desperate the situation is, I think it's a miracle in itself that we were able to do what we did. And when you think that when we started the the United Farm Workers, it was just Cesar Chavez, his wife Helen, and myself, three of us, organizing people through house meetings, et cetera, we were able to get uh, over a 1,000 farm workers organized initially. And it's kind of interesting because... Uh, we made all of these plans of how we were going to organize the whole Central Valley of California, which is eight different counties. It's uh, bigger than most states. And yet we weren't able to do that because the Filipino workers went out on strike and we had to support them. So it changed our whole plan. So I think I learned that not to be disappointed when things don't go the way that you want. And because often when things don't go the way that you want and you have all these these plans, is because you're supposed to do something different. You're supposed to go in a different direction. But what a huge sense of responsibility to be on that journey and know how many people are relying on you to deliver for them, right? The stakes are incredibly high when you do the work that you do. There was a line in your official bio, it's from your foundation page, 
that I loved. It said, as much as she was Cesar's right hand, she could also be the greatest thorn in his side. The two were infamous for their blowout arguments, an element that was a natural part of their working relationship. Tell us about one of those fights. Well, I kind of say it's the way that women think and the way that men think. When we started the great boycott, I was in New York City, and uh, Caesar said we should boycott potatoes. And I said, no, Caesar, people don't think of California when they think of potatoes, they think of Idaho. So we had this big argument on the telephone. Uh, So I finally said to Caesar, well, I think I should fly back to California so that we can have this argument in person. And I think we should boycott grapes because California produces 90% of the grapes of the United States of America. And the employer that we were battling with at that time grew, he had both grapes and potatoes, okay? And so Caesar didn't want to pay my plane fare, so he gave up. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we ended up boycotting grapes instead of potatoes, okay? Uh, and the other thing on, on the boycott is uh, I was in charge of the boycott on the East Coast, so what I did is I went after the small independent stores to take off the grapes. You know, we would pick at the stores, and they would eventually take off the grapes. And so we got the independent stores, and then we went after the small chains, and then we got them to take off the grapes, and then went after the larger chains, and then, you know, finally the biggest chains. So in California, Caesar was doing, in the West Coast, starting from Chicago West, uh, they were doing the boycott, but Caesar took on the biggest stores, kind of like the macho trip, you know, going to take on the biggest chains. So while we were able to get all of the East Coast clean from Chicago uh, to New York and down to Florida, we had all the grapes out of all of the stores. And guess what? In California, they were still boycotting. So then I flew to California and I did the same strategy that I did here. And we got all the grapes out of the stores over there. So again, it's, it's the kind of the feminist logic, right? You take on the small ones first and get them clean. So then you have clean stores to send people to. We could always say, go to that store because they don't have any grapes, right? Instead of just battling the biggest chain. And I guess the one thing uh, Caesar told me, you know, he did these fasts that he did. He did two fasts for 25 days, water only fast. And his last was for, fast was for 36 days. And he wanted to bring uh, to the attention of the public about the pesticides, the economic poisons on our food. And that's why he did that last fast. But after one of his fasts, I think it was the, the first one, and I said, I apologize. I said, you know, Caesar, I'm really sorry that, you know, I argue with you so much. And he said, don't ever stop. He said, because you keep me honest. He thanked me, you know. Because a lot of the people, I mean, they, they kind of worshipped Caesar and they looked up to him. And uh, I guess I, I, I didn't see him in that way, you know. I just saw him as a, a co-worker and somebody that I could disagree with. What a thing to be able to say. Me Too and the subsequent Times Up initiative, from the outside it seems, has been really mindful about being clear that sexual abuses are rampant across industry. It affects women who are working in the fields. It affects women who are working in corporate boardrooms. When did you first become aware of sexual abuses that were happening to farm workers? Well, I have to say that my own mother, you know, I would go work in the packing sheds and she wouldn't let me work in the fields. And I didn't know why. But then when we started the union, well, I did go out into the fields, you know, and right away you saw as a young woman, 
you get you feel like like the hawks were circling <laughs> around you, you know, looking at you while you're working, and all of the foremen would come around you. I was never sexually abused in the field, but when I was uh, negotiating contracts for the workers, the stories were horrible. In one of the last uh, negotiations that I was doing, this is hard to believe. Not only were women sexually abused in the fields, but there were some women that would have children from the contractors, because that was their job security. There were other women that, to make sure that they could get their job, they would have to meet the foreman uh, or the contractor, uh, maybe uh, at a motel, uh, you know, before the job started. And I think it still goes on today, but the biggest thing about the fear that the women had to report it, because women, uh, they were afraid because they were afraid that their husbands or their boyfriends or their brothers or fathers, that they would blame them if, if some kind of sexual harassment was going on. It's a, it was very hard for women for them to lose that fear. In California, luckily, though, we have really, really great laws in terms of protecting women uh, when they are harassed. So they can, the whole thing can be kept private uh, so that they don't have to fear that, that uh, you know, their, their family is going to be exposed. The other thing, it's an economic fear also because if, if women are harassed and sometimes families work together, they would fire the whole family if the woman complained. This is hard work. It's emotionally taxing work. Has there ever been a moment when you wanted to throw up your hands and just walk away? Oh, never. And the reason, <laughs> and the reason I say this is because I think the more people that we can reach out to, uh, the more people that we can empower, and this is what we need to do. I think it's like having a magic, a magic wand that you go into a community and you say to poor people, you know what, you have power. And they kind of don't believe it. But then you give them examples, as Mr. Ross did to us, Mr. Fred Ross, you know, showing us pictures of people in East Los Angeles, how they had brought in streetlights and sidewalks and clinics into their community, how they put policemen in prison for beating up Mexican-American youth. And I thought, man, if they can do that, I want to do that too, you know? I want to put a cop in prison for beating people up, you know? And it needs to see that people had that power to make those, those changes. I thought that's, that, that's to me, it's like magic. I don't know that I have ever interviewed someone who does this type of work and asked them if they've had a moment where they thought of work, walking away and had them say, no, they haven't. So <laughs> I am impressed by your tenacity. And it leads me to this question, which is, do you consider yourself a person of faith? Oh, you have to. If you don't have faith, it's almost impossible to do this work. It's almost impossible. You've got to have faith in the in people, number one, trying to empower them, uh, that they can actually change sometimes. And you've got to have faith in, in, in God that you're, what you're doing is, is really going to have fruition. And I have to say this, like, uh, because when I, you know, I was a school teacher, so I quit teaching school uh, to come and be an organizer. And when we started the union, of course, there was no money. And all, many members of my family thought I, I was crazy. I'm sure. And I got a lot of criticisms. It was like I had run away to join the circus or something, you know, <laughs> uh, and taking all my children with me, not knowing where our next meal is going to come from, but also uh, having to live like the farm workers, having to get my food from uh, the food bank, the surplus commodities, and eating what they were eating, which is the beans and the rice and the cornmeal, the flour, you know, the stuff that you get from the food bank. Uh, being treated like a farm worker. And it's really different when you're a school teacher and you come in and you're dressed up like a middle class person. And then, you know, you're the same person, but you're dressed like a farm worker and you get totally different treatment. 
you're just like an immigrant, you get a different treatment. And then, of course, my family, once we got popular and we're in the news and everything, they all changed their, their attitudes. But for a, for a long time, it was really hard. And it was kind of lonely, too, coming from, you know, a city where I grew up and I knew everybody and then going to Delano, California, where I didn't know anyone. And even having to change uh, some of my own uh, behavior, so to speak, you know. Like what? You know, when we're trying to do this healing work that I'm talking about, it's uh, easy to get angry and to get mad at people because they don't agree with you. But I'll, I have this story I tell about a, a woman. Because when we started the union, a, a farmer was paid dues. They paid like three fifty a month. And back in 1962, when we started, that would be like $40 a month. And people were making like 50 to 70 cents an hour. That was their wage. And yet they had to pay like the equivalent of $40 a month to join the union. And it was very difficult. And what Caesar would say, and it, you know, and I had to really learn that, is that if they don't pay the dues now so that we can organize, they will never be able to change their condition. And I really had to believe that. And I remember going to this one house. It was the 16th of September, Mexican Independence Day. And if I would have been in my hometown, I would have been getting dressed up to go to the dance, you know, to go to all the celebrations. So I go to this house, and this young woman opens the door. She's all dressed up. And I thought, I'm thinking, here I am in Delano, California, don't know anyone. And I'm thinking, oh, she's probably going to the dance, and she'll probably invite me to go to the dance with her. And then when she opened the door, and I said, hello, and they said, I came to collect your monthly dues for the union. And she kind of gave me a dirty look. And then she said to her father, Papa, vinieron por tu dinero. Dad, they came for your money in a very sarcastic way, okay? And so I thought, well, she's not going to invite me to the dance, that's for sure. <laughs> so, so I went and I got, got her father's dues, and then maybe about a month later, she comes to the office with a whole stack of income taxes, and she says, here, I want you to fill these income taxes for our family, with that tone of voice. And so I took a deep breath, went to the back of the office, I counted to 10, and then I came back out, smiling, and took the income taxes, okay? And later on, when we started the strike, that same woman came into the office, young woman, came into the office and said, I just want to let you know that I just took out my whole crew on strike. They're all on strike. And I thought, I'm so happy that I didn't get mad at her. <laughs> and now she's my comadre, okay? She ended up baptizing one of my children. You know? But, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, you never know about people, so you don't want to get mad at them or, you know, when, when they treat you wrongly or they don't agree with you. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. 
Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the LA area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer, M&M's for all fun kind. There are many who argue that the labor movement in the U.S. is on the decline today. Do you agree with that assessment? Oh, absolutely. But it's it's not because of the lack of organizing, but so many laws have been passed to make uh, labor unions uh, make it difficult. I'll give you an example. Uh, the labor unions have been trying to pass a law that if you sign a card to say that you want the union to represent you, that that would be enough evidence so that workers can get union representation. And they have been passing laws to prevent that from happening. Well, just think about it. If your signature is good enough for you to buy a house, buy a car, get married, get a divorce, you know, your signature should be good enough for you to uh, choose a union to represent you. And instead, unions have to go out there and try to organize. Uh, The employers put a lot of uh, pressure on the workers, and they fire workers or threaten workers not to join the unions. Recently, I was arrested with home care workers in Fresno, California, uh, where they're trying to get a, a union contract and getting a wage increase. Do you know what the offer was from the Board of Supervisors? These are public workers, you might say. They're home care workers. You know, they have to be within 24 hours a day. They have to bathe them. They have to feed them. They have to take care of them. They offered them 10 cents an hour a wage increase. And the supervisors that they're negotiating with, they make $100,000 a year. So this is the imbalance that we have right now in our society, and it is very dangerous because labor unions are the ones that create the middle class. And as I said before, if we don't have a middle class, we don't have a democracy. So the demise of labor unions is affecting our whole society. And everybody knows that the wages have not been able to keep up with the cost of living, and and that's why you have so many homeless people, you have so many poor people in the richest country of the world. 1988, I believe you were 58 years old. You were protesting against the policies of then-presidential candidate George H.W. Bush in San Francisco. A police officer broke four of your ribs, shattered your spleen. Incredibly long recovery. What went through your head in that moment? Well, at that moment, I was just hurting. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, it was very, a very violent attack on people that were protesting not the policies of uh, George W. Bush at that time. Uh, the one good thing that came out of that, because there's a saying in Spanish that says, no hay nada mal que algo bien no sale. You know, there's nothing so bad that something good doesn't come out of it. Well, the good thing that came out of that beating is that I sued the city of San Francisco and I get $2,000 a month till I die, okay? <laughs> 
So uh, because of that beating, I'm able to continue to work. You know, with my foundation, uh, the Dolores Huerta Foundation, I do not take any money from my foundation because I'm very political and we're a nonprofit organization. Uh, but with the $2,000 a month that I get from my beating, uh, plus $600 a month from my Social Security, I'm able to continue to work for a long time. But the other thing that I th is, is important too, a lot of people say, well, once you got that beating and you've seen people that were killed, people that were beaten uh, with the work that we were doing, uh, does that change your mind about nonviolence? And I say, no. You know, before we started the union, Cesar and I, and I, I didn't know that Cesar uh, had studied Gandhi, as I had uh, when I was going to college, uh, but uh, when I met Cesar, it, was, it made me feel good to know that he had also believed in Gandhi's uh, philosophy and principles of nonviolence. And so before we even started the union, uh, we talked about that that we would incorporate into the Farm Workers Union the philosophies of nonviolence. And of course, uh, and we did follow that, as Caesar did with his fast, with the marches, you know. And even when people in the union were killed, you know, uh, what we would do when someone was killed, we fasted for three days. Everybody in the organization fasted for three days uh, just to uh, calm down the violence, you know. When you see the violence that's been perpetrated across communities, most recently the attack against Latinos that happened in Texas, how do you square the Gandhian notion of a beloved community with the violence that we see reaped upon our society? Well, what I would hope is that that type of violence really inspires all of us that we have to get involved and we have to end the hatred. And I would hope that every single institution in our country, our educational institutions, our public institutions, our private organizations, that everybody starts making a commitment to end the racism in our society, because I think that's where the violence stems from. Yeah. And racism, but also I think gender violence also. We know that many women are killed every single day in our country by someone that does not respect that woman, that sees her as a sex object or as a servant and do not really respect that woman. You know, I like to say to people and remind people, everything on this earth came out of the body of a woman. We don't think about that often, you know. You even got snaps for that one. Yeah, I, th I think a, I speak for most of the people in this room when I say we look at you and think, wow, this woman is fearless. So tell me about the last time you were afraid. I think right now. I, I am afraid for our, our world. I mean, when we think of uh, global warming and uh, what's happening to our country and to our world, uh, when, again, putting the prophets above uh, humanity, you might say, when people think of drilling in the Arctic because there's oil under the ice. And when they do that, it's going to create more global warming. It's going to create more methane. And the planet's going to get hotter. It comes back to the electoral process about electing people that are going to make sure uh, that we can change. And I don't really know a lot about the Green New Deal. I know we've heard it mentioned, uh, but I think part of the Green New Deal is say, putting some dates out there. When can we get away from using fossil fuel for energy? We've already got the technology. So it's again, it's a matter of will. It's a matter of not just thinking about profits, but what can we do to save our planet? And that's why when you asked me, uh, you know, why don't I retire? I can't, because we've got to get the word out there to people that they've got to get involved. 
When you talk about the electoral process, it, it brings to mind Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is certainly one of the most prominent Latinas, if not the most prominent Latina in politics today. Do you see a connection between the work she is doing and the enthusiasm she inspires and the work that you have dedicated your life to? Oh, absolutely, because I, I think that uh, she got elected by doing a grassroots campaign and not going to wealthy donors. And that's what we have to do. We have to go back to grassroots. I may not agree with her candidate. Uh, I actually, Meaning that she is a Sanders yeah, supporter. Yeah, I'm actually and... supporting Kamala Harris, okay? Because I think it's time for a woman, okay? A woman to take power. Women are often taught not to take credit. I think Latinas are taught that especially. Has there been a time in this work that you have not been given the credit that you deserved? Oh, let me count the times. <laughs> no, I, I can name so many, many times that this happened. And actually, I think a lot of us women, uh, we are a kind of uh, feel that we try to take credit for our work, that we're being conceited. I think the one word that is important for women to really use is the word courage. You have courage to stand up, you know, for ourselves. And it is so hard for us to do. And, you know, I did the great boycott. I directed the great boycott on the East Coast, on the West Coast, uh, to make sure that we got the growers to the a bargaining table. I negotiated the contract. But the day that they took the picture signing the contracts, which I had just negotiated, and I had just done the boycott to get the growers to the table, I wasn't in the picture. Okay, why? Because I wasn't even in that frame of mind, you know? And uh, I was sitting next to Caesar. We were going to sign. We were going to sign the contracts. And our vice president, Larry Edelong, said, "Oh, do you mind if I sit there?" And I got up and gave him my chair. Really? Yes, I did that. And so when you see those that very historic picture of the contracts being signed, I'm not in that picture. Would you say that was a mistake? That was a very bad mistake. <laughs> and and I know sometimes. Uh, and and I have to say this to myself often that. When we find it hard to take credit for our work, that we have to do it on behalf of women everywhere. And it's not just about us being conceited, but we have to do it for other women. And I have to keep saying that to myself, because we are so conditioned and so socialized not to take credit or not to put ourselves out there in front, you know. And I love that saying, a woman's place is where she wants to be, a woman's place is where she needs to be. And I like to say, when you see these uh, big pictures of all of these um, men making, having meetings, whether it's the G7 or whoever they are, and there are no feminists at that table, you can be sure they're going to make the wrong decision, okay? They're going to make the wrong decision because they do not have our intuition. They do not have our voices at the table. When we talk about why women don't take credit, part of it is that there is a penalty that women face when they do take credit, which is that we become less likable. I mean, that probably would have been manifest if you would have said, no, I'm sitting in this seat and you can't have it. Sorry. Do you care whether or not other people like you? Can you do the work you do and care about what other people are thinking of you? Well, I think... Uh it depends who your enemies are. And, that, <laughs> and I like, you know, I think there's something in the Bible that says something like that. Uh, when you're doing uh, God's work, when you're doing justice work, and people curse you or criticize you, we have to consider it a blessing, you know, because, you know, you're doing the right thing. So, yeah, people do say, you know, ter mean things and terrible things, uh, but that's okay. As long as you have, again, faith 
in what you're doing is the right thing and you're trying to help others, then you have to just ignore uh, what people say about you, you know, and just keep doing the work. Easier said than done. You have 11 children. I have two. I can barely keep track of them. So that's my first question, which is how do you keep track of 11 children? And how, because I find this so hard as a mother, perhaps the single greatest challenge of being a mother, which is how I instill in them these values and these principles with which I have lived my life. Well, I think to all mothers, uh, just bring your children along with you in whatever you do. My kids kind of grew up in the movement. And uh, so it's part of their DNA, basically. They were on marches. And my son, Rick, my youngest son, he has a really good way of saying this. Uh, for those of you that see the documentary, Dolores, uh, my son, Rick, says, yeah, my mother abandoned us in the parking lot of a store with a bunch of leaflets that we had to pass out. And uh, when people would come up to us and say, you little commies, go back to Mexico. He says, we can't, we don't have a ride, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, my kids all grew up in the movement. And, you know, even though my kids grew up really poor, I just have to say they're very resourceful. My oldest son is a doctor. My daughter, Angela, is an oncology nurse. Uh, my daughter, Juanita, became a teacher. My son, Emilio, is an attorney. And he's uh, he's running for office this year. He's going to run for supervisor. My daughter, Alicia, who's with me right here, uh, she's actually traveling with me right now. And she's working for our foundation. <laughs> So, I mean, and my kids, uh, my son Vincent's a chef, you know, uh, and now he's into real estate, unfortunately. But anyway, so I wanted them all to be organizers, but of course they all took their own paths, what they have to do. But the thing is to bring your children with you, and the, the biggest thing that you can uh, teach them is a legacy of justice, you know, because they, when, when they're active and they grow up and they go to marches and they feel that energy and that power of people working together for a cause, I think that stays with them through life. What price have you paid for dedicating your life to this work? Well, I, I don't think I paid the price. Uh, I think my children probably paid the price more because they didn't, uh, we weren't able to get, I mentioned to you my, what my mother did for us growing up, you know, having all of these uh, wonderful events. And I remember being in Washington, D.C. once, and we were going to a ballet, and then my daughter Juanita said to me, Mother, I've never been to a ballet before. And I thought, oh my gosh. You know, when I grew up, you know, we had the symphony tickets and we were able to see all these wonderful performances. And my kid didn't have that. I had the piano lessons, the dancing lessons, the violin lessons. My children didn't have any of that. And uh, I think those are the sacrifices, not that I made, but that my kids made. And so for you, nothing? You really feel like you have not paid a price for this work? I, I have, I've had a very blessed life. Uh, I think I've been very, very fortunate, and uh, thinking of how many people I've been able to organize and empower, I mean, that to me is such a, an incredible gift, you know, to be able to do that. And I would hope that all of us can do the same thing out there, okay? Go out there and organize as many people as you can, get them involved, and take away that apathy. Here, here's my last question, which is, as you said, this is a moment in which even you, the fearless, are afraid, and I think it can feel like these are very dark times. What do you say to yourself in those moments when you have to organize and mobilize yourself? Well, I just uh, saying to myself, we've got to get out there and do more work. <laughs> you know, I like to quote the, the uh, Chilean poet, Pablo Neruda, and he said, they can cut all the flowers, 
but they can't hold back the spring. And so I like to say that we are the gardeners, that we have to sow the seeds of justice, you know. And those those seeds of justice that we are sowing out there, they will flower. You know, they will come back. And But we're the ones that have to do it. So I'll give a big round of applause. Dolores Huerta. Thank Thanks for joining us for this special episode. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentequa-Williams and me. Maria Muriel is our producer. Carolina Rodriguez is our sound engineer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. This episode was recorded live at Seton Hall University. Eng Santos was our field producer. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora. We're everywhere and wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. It's one of the quickest ways to help us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.